Welcome to the Not Old Better Show, Smithsonian Associates interview series. I'm Paul Vogelzang. And as part of our Smithsonian Associates Inside Science interview series, our guest today is Dr. Marlene Zook. Dr. Marlene Zook is an evolutionary biologist studying the evolution of behavior, particularly sexual selection and communication. Dr. Zook helped develop the idea that parasites and pathogens are instrumental in the evolution of sexual differences, and Dr. Zook has examined how behavior affects the rate of evolution. Dr. Zook will be appearing at the Smithsonian Associates program coming up, so please check out our website for more details. Our lively conversation today is all about exploration of animal behavior in all its glorious complexity. Dr. Marlene Zook goes beyond the tired nature versus nurture debate to focus with us on the interaction between genes and the environment. Driving Dr. Zook's investigation is a simple but essential question. How does behavior evolve? Dr. Zook addresses our questions by drawing from a wealth of research on animal behavior, including her own on insects. Dr. Zook shares stories of cockatoos that dance to rock music, ants that heal their injured companions, dogs that exhibit signs of obsessive-compulsive disorder, we all have seen that, and much, much more. Dr. Zook has written the new book creatively titled Dancing Cockatoos and the Dead Man Test, How Behavior evolves and why it matters. We will discuss Dr. Zook's insights into animal intelligence, mating behavior, disease fighting capacity, and the diverse interactions between an organism's genes and its environment. And Dr. Zook urges us to consider how that same process applies to humans. Please join me in welcoming to the Not Old Better Show Smithsonian Associates Inside Science interview series on radio and podcast. Dr. Marlene Zook. Dr. Marlene Zook, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us today. I am excited to talk to you. This book title, which we'll get into, is just wonderful, Dancing Cockatoos and the Dead Man Test. I just, I love that title, so I want to talk to you about that. But I think let's start kind of at the start and maybe just tell us about your upcoming Smithsonian Associates presentation. Sure. So the book reflects a longstanding interest of mine in animal behavior writ large. I've been working in animal behavior for decades now. And one of the things that always comes up is, oh, you know, where does that behavior come from? Is that behavior learned? Is that behavior genetic? Is it instinctive? And people ask that question in so many ways and for so many reasons that I wanted to write a book talking about where animal behavior comes from, but in a way that doesn't just retread a lot of the tired nature-nurture controversy that that I think, you know, we really are all kind of sick of. Yeah, and we'll, I, I do want to talk, talk to you a little bit about the nature versus nurture debate, of course, but I, I just, again, I love this book and, and Dancing Cockatoos and the Dead Man Test, just, you know, that, that's got to bring people in just all by itself. But tell us, where does the title come from? So the title comes from some examples of things that people use to 
to think about behavior that I just thought were kind of catchy. Um, uh, some other candidates, incidentally, um, that were rejected by my editor, I was surprised, were I was going to, instead of dancing cockatoos, I was going to have anxious crayfish or potentially spiteful octopus, um, both of which are in the book and I think would have been really nice, but I think maybe she didn't want uh, anxious and spiteful in the title and instead dancing seemed like probably a little bit more um, lighthearted and you know maybe something that would pull people in more. But um, I, I think all three of those phrases, whether it's dancing cockatoos or spiteful uh, octopus or anxious crayfish, point to how when we look at animals, we want to make them into creatures that share our own predilections, our own emotions, our own ideas about doing things. Um, and so with the dancing cockatoos in particular. So this is um, a, an example that a lot of listeners probably will have heard of. This is Snowball. Snowball is a sulfur-crested cockatoo who rocketed to fame a number of years ago because it turns out that he can keep to the beat of music that uh, his owner plays. And there was a great article in The Guardian that covered this uh, saying, and, and I have this quote in the book and I just love it, it all started as some things must with the Backstreet Boys. Um, and uh, so the idea was that uh, Snowball would uh, move his body rhythmically in tune to, well, various songs, but including one from the Backstreet Boys. Um, and he would do all these things. I, I you know, if, if you have not Googled Snowball the Cockatoo, I urge you to do that because Snowball is really quite something to watch. And he moves exactly in keeping with the beat. He can change his movements depending on the music. You know, he's doing what, you know, you would really call actual dancing. And it is, and there was scientific papers written about it. And in uh, one of them, which I thought was quite funny, they said, oh, well, of course, you know, it must be said, I, I'm paraphrasing here, but it must be said that, well, Snowball mostly just bobs his head and, um, uh, moves his body back and forth. So, you know, it's not really all that fancy. And I, I thought, well, you know, I don't know. I know a lot of people for whom dancing, that's pretty much all they do too. So, you know, I don't, I don't really, you know, let, right. let's, let's not get too critical here. Um, but anyway, I think right. it's, and, and so, you know, the question is, well, what does this mean? What is snowball dancing, you know, tell us? And so, well, I think it does tell us something, but it doesn't necessarily tell us what we think it might which is that it doesn't tell us that cockatoos are just like people or that when they dance, they're dancing just like people dance or even that, you know, oh no, they're only responding, you know, out of some series of um, genetically controlled impulses and they're just like little robots. So instead, animal behavior, like human behavior, is this complex and wonderful and fascinating mix of input from your genes and input from your environment that produce this, you know, amazing thing that we call animal behavior. So then does behavior evolve or are we just hardwired with some of our dancing abilities like Snowball and maybe? So, so that, yeah, that's the whole question. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. either Snowball or us, like where where is this coming from? And my argument in the book is that both for other animals and for humans, all of our behavior comes from, like I said, both genes and the environment, and it evolves the same way that physical characteristics do. And that can kind of bring us to the dead man test, but, but first let me just sketch out that I think behavior, sometimes people want to set aside behavior like, oh, it's just kind of squishy. It's something that, you know, 
passes and then it's over with. It's so variable. It's so flexible. So, you know, we don't really consider it the way we consider physical characteristics, like how tall you are or the color of a cockatoo's feathers or something like that. Well, I don't think that's true. I think behavior evolves the same way that other traits like leg length or feather color evolve um, through selection and mutation and changes that have to do with the kinds of reactions that different kinds of traits get. And I think that we, we end up in kind of an untenable position if we want to argue that behavior is somehow different than, than other traits. And I may be sensitive to this because I think people who work in animal behavior, you know, people think, oh, well, but that's kind of squishier and not really as, as hard science as someone who works on, um, I don't know, uh, physical characteristics or physiological characteristics, because those are, you can really measure those. But I think it really is all of a continuum. And part of that, so that's where the dead man test comes in. Shall I tell you what the dead man test yeah, is? Please. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so I, I spent some time in the book talking about, well, okay, before we can talk about how behavior evolves, which is really what the book is about, we need to talk about what behavior is. So, okay, what is behavior? And it turns out that that's a much more sticky question than you might think. Um, and even people, you know, I teach animal behavior and I kind of punt on it, frankly, and I usually just say, okay, I'm teaching animal behavior. I'm going to call behavior anything that an animal does. And then we're going to move on quickly. Because if you really examine that, uh, maybe that's not such a good way to think about it because, well, what about digestion? Is that behavior? Like, you know, right now you may be digesting your lunch. Things are moving around. That's something that an animal or a person does. But ordinarily, we don't, if you think about animal behavior, you don't think about digestion. So, hmm, that's a problem. Well, and then, okay, if it's just animals, well, I, I often show um, audiences of uh, different videos and I'll show them a, a video of maybe like a lion roaring or, you know, a bird, you know, displaying. And then I'll also show them a video of a Venus flytrap closing. So you've all seen that, right? You know, like the fly, you know, stumbles into the trap and then the traps, um, appendages kind of close pretty fast on the insect and the, you know, the plant has moved, the insect struggles. Is that behavior on the part of the plant? People tend to be kind of divided about that. Some of them are like, yes, plants can behave just like people. And some of them are, nah, it's just a response. And I'm actually not going to, you know, so my personal opinion is that plants don't really behave. They do have movement, but it's not really the same as animal behavior. But the point in bringing that up is that, you know, behavior kind of smushes into all kinds of other characteristics like digestion or physiological traits or anything else. The dead man test is a test that is applied by what are called behavior analysts or people who do behavior analysis, which is a branch of psychology that uses um, kind of uh, B.F. Skinner, the, the original behaviorist from uh, the 20th century, uh, he had a lot of ideas about reinforcement and how you, you know, can uh, shape animal behavior through rewards and so forth. And they're following in this tradition. And their idea is that if a dead man can do it, then it's not behavior. But if a dead man can't do it, then it is. So 
That's the dead man test. You scrutinize that a little bit and you can find some fuzzy edges too. But my point in bringing it up is that behavior evolves just like everything else. And that doesn't mean that behavior is more rigid or that it's just dictated by our genes. It means that everything is less rigid than we thought it was, including things, you know, like maybe your leg length or how your height or something like that. Hi, it's Paul. Do you love entertaining, informative, eclectic, insightful programs about culture, health, science, life, and everything Smithsonian? As part of our Smithsonian Associates interview series on radio and podcast, we're introducing you to the new Smithsonian Associates streaming series. Smithsonian, a nonprofit organization, is excited to present this new aspect of their 55 years as the world's largest museum-based educational program. Join us from the comfort of your home as we periodically interview Smithsonian Associate guest speakers. Our audience here on radio and podcast can explore our website for more information, links, and details at notold-better.com. Thanks, everybody. We are with Dr. Marlene Zook. Dr. Zook will be presenting at the Smithsonian Associates. Coming up here, we'll have links to where you can find out more information about Dr. Zook, her upcoming Smithsonian Associates presentation, which is titled Animal Behavior, How It Evolves and Why It Matters, and information about her new book, Dancing Cockatoos and the Dead Man Test. Again, I love that title, Dr. Zook. Maybe tell us, what led you to write the book in the first place? Did you first see Snowball on the internet and just think, that's a book. <laughs> you know, I kind of, now that you say that, I kind of wish I had, but alas, no, yeah. the title came later. It went through several iterations. And like I said, I, I auditioned, you know, I, I was lobbying pretty hard for Spiteful Octopus. Really, you, you don't like Spiteful Octopus? I, I liked Spiteful Octopus. I love, so, so well, I love Anxious Crayfish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anxiety there works. Anx- or, or anxiety, the anxiety, in- the anxious cravings. Anyway, so so yeah. the the book is something that I've been thinking about for a really long time. In part because if you work in animal behavior, people are constantly asking you questions about their pets or questions about something that an animal they saw did. And one of the first things they want to know is, you know, where did that behavior come from? Is that behavior something that's instinctive that they just automatically do? Is that behavior something that was taught? Where does that behavior come from? And if you think about it, that question is behind a lot of what we think about, not just with animals, but with people. We know a lot of our biggest controversies, a lot of our arguments all come from this, where is behavior coming from? Is it something that is dictated by our genes? Is it something that is that we're just learned or cultural or what have you. And we have tons of these pairs of words that we use, learned versus instinctive, um, you know, nature versus nurture, environmental uh, and cultural versus, um, you know, hardwired or in the blueprint or something like that. And I think that this dichotomy has really been a problem for us because we want, we, we think that things have to be one way or the other, And at some level, we kind of know that's not true. Like we kind of know that a lot of traits are both learned and from from our genes, but it's a hard thing to get a hold of. And so I wanted to write a book about how we think about that with respect to animals, because I think that gives us a a helpful way to think about the problem in general, even with people. Mm -hmm. And you've used the words 
squishy and and kind of smushed together. It, it seems like that's kind of where we're at, that nature versus nurture, that debate might not be relevant, but maybe it is, but maybe it's not enough. Exactly. That's it's. And I, I feel like we keep saying, no, no, we understand that everything comes from both our genes and our environment. And then somehow I, I, I talk in the book about how um, the nature nurture controversy has become what you might think of as a zombie idea in science. And <laughs> I'm borrowing that uh, phrase from um, well, from a bunch of places, but there's a blog I really like uh, called uh, Dynamic Ecology, in which an ecologist named Jeremy Fox um, coined that, or I, I think he coined it. I, I should be cautious about that. But I, anyway, he uses that phrase to talk about some fairly specific ideas in um, ecology and environmental sciences that have to do with like the number of species on in different kinds of habitats or, you know, the way different kinds of plants and animals interact or something like that. And, you know, his point is just that sometimes we get an idea and everybody's all like, yeah, that's really right. We think that. And then somebody says, oops, no, that doesn't work. And somebody else says, oh, right, that doesn't work. And so then everybody says, oh, OK, we're done with that. And then somehow it's not really dead. <laughs> and then a little while later, everybody's back to the idea and you say, oh, but that doesn't really work. And 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 so I feel like the nature nurture thing just won't die. <laughs> and I, as I said, it's, it comes with a lot of our most deeply held ideas. Um, there was an article in the New York Times a few years ago um, that uh, talked about the unexamined brutality of the male libido. Um, it was an op-ed piece. And basically, it was kind of at the height of the Me Too movement. And the author was talking about how well... You know, we all want um, the world to be more equitable and we want, um, you know, uh, women to be um, treated uh, more fairly and for there to be less harassment. But, you know, kind of the tenor of the article is, well, but there is this inherent, you know, brutality of the male libido, um, which is that's quite a phrase, too. Um, but uh, <laughs> that that means that, you know, and he used the word inherent. So we're kind of stuck with it, you know. So sorry, ladies, you know, complain all you want. Males are inherently brutal. And, and I think a lot of arguments about gender, a lot of arguments about lots of other things get to this. Oh, well, but but at, at its base, there is this hardwired thing. And. I would like to argue that there isn't a hardwired thing because nothing's hardwired like that. Everything gets this interaction between genes and the environment. So you really, it, you just can't talk about things as being just genetic or just environmental or cultural or learned. In the book, you talk about invertebrates, especially insects, being particularly good subjects for understanding uh, animal behavior. T tell us a little bit about what you mean by that. What what does that uh, refer to? Sure. I and and so and I will say that that one of my favorite chapter titles from the book um, is uh, called "A Soft Spot for Hard Creatures," and it it kind of reflects my feelings about you know arthropods, insects in particular. I've worked on insects most of my career, um, and I really love insects. I even liked them when I was a child. But one of the things I love about them is that it's so hard to see them as little people. You know, you, I mean, people do that. I mean, God knows people anthropomorphize insects as long as, you know, as well as anything else. But I think that insects really challenge us to think about where behavior comes from and how it can evolve because their brains are different, their sense organs are different, their world, their, the whole way they perceive everything is different. And so I think it's really hard to look at them as just like little people in exoskeletons. Um, and because of that, you really think about, okay, 
So what does it take to be like a human? Because being like a human doesn't mean that you have to be an ape. It doesn't mean you even have to be a mammal. And anyway, what do you mean by like a human and what ways are we like humans and what ways aren't? I think we've always got this idea that we want to have certain animals that are like with us, you know, like we think humans are like humans and then, oh yeah, chimpanzees are totally like us because they're really closely related to us evolutionarily, which is true. And so, okay, us and chimpanzees. And so we see chimpanzees as being just like people. And then, you know, you go through these fads, like for a while, everybody thought dolphins were super cool. Um, and then crows and jays, you know, everybody says, oh yeah, but they're so smart and they're really like people. And I, I, I often say, well, okay, it's like a basket, you know, so, so we're putting everything in this basket with humans and we think, oh, they're special. Oh, they're different. Oh, they're like us. But where are we going with this? It's not like the world has a giant IQ test in it that some animals are going to do well on and some animals aren't. <laughs> and I think invertebrates are great because they show us that you can be really, really, really different and come up with something that's incredibly complex and interesting. Yeah. And and you refer to the crows and ravens, and they, of course, are famous for using, you know, tools and and to obtain food and, and, you know, even defending their, their territories. I, I, my family took a trip and, and we actually saw some of these crows and, and, and you, you talk about birds that use cigarettes to fumigate their nests. <laughs> I thought that was a fascinating one too. How does that work? <laughs> so that's a great example again of how you don't have to attribute human, you know, consciousness or human like motivations to something that, you know, looks like it would be what a human would do. So cigarettes, um, as everybody knows, contain um, kind of uh, volatile compounds that are sort of noxious that um, can have a lot of uh, active biological properties. And one of those active biological properties is um, in uh, pest control, like it'll control insects. And some researchers a number of years ago found that there were birds that were taking, picking up, there were urban birds living in a city, and they were picking up cigarette butts, shredding them, and using the remains of the tobacco in their nests. And what it would do is um, keep away the uh, the fleas and the ticks and other parasites that um, can be very damaging to the baby birds in the nest. So you look at that and you think, wow, that's clever. Like, how did a bird ever, you know, figure out, like, what did they do? See a person smoking a cigarette, <laughs> then watch an ad about how bad that was for their lungs, then think that maybe that would be good for killing an insect, then right. think that, oh, I know where I could do that. You know, I mean, when you really spell it out to yourself, it's like, oh, come on, that's ridiculous. Um, and also it's ridiculous to think that a bird has a gene that makes it pick up a cigarette butt. But what it suggests is that this behavior, like all behaviors, can be very flexible. And, a, and so birds use lots of things to put in their nests. They use leaves. They use twigs. They use uh, spider. It depends on the bird. They use spider webs. Um, they use feathers from either their own bodies or other birds. And so let's say there's a bird who did that. And um, birds actually have a somewhat better sense of smell than a lot of people think. Let's say they pick up um, aromatic things. They'll sometimes also pick up leaves that have particular aromatic properties. And so let's say they did that with a cigarette butt and um, their babies, you know, survived better than anybody else's babies because they had fewer parasites. 
So then you have an environment where, you know, you're more likely to pick up cigarette butts and you don't have to have the bird's mind, as it were, working in exactly the same way a human's would, much less seeing a, you know, anti-smoking ad, which I don't know how birds would see. <laughs> right. Well, you know, it just it kind of makes sense to me. And I, I just hate mosquitoes. I love being outside, but I just hate mosquitoes. And if there were a way that I could figure out to learn this process, I might take up smoking as vile as that might be or just stuff my pockets with cigarette butts. Yeah, I don't think that would work. (laughs) Okay. Okay. (laughs) I mean, there are ways to keep away, you know, like mosquitoes, as as we all know. Um, And and Mm -hmm. so, you know, that that does work. Actually, the the other interesting thing that came up with the mosquitoes, which is an idea that I'm somewhat skeptical about. I don't know if you saw this. It was in the news pretty recently that um, uh, cat that that some of the plants that cat use cats use um, not so much catnip, but a relative of it um, is supposed to have anti mosquito um, capabilities. And so the idea is that if cats roll in this, then they're you know potentially keeping away mosquitoes. And I I found this a little dubious in part because I don't really think mosquitoes don't really bother cats that much like they're not you know they're mostly covered in fur they could get bites on like their nose but (laughs) you know it's not like a major thing for cats um so so i was a little dubious about that and also how long lasting would like you'd have to really imagine the cats doing it and getting immediate rewards from it and so i think catnip and the attraction to it is just going to have to remain a little bit of a mystery at least for me (laughs) yeah yeah i'll you know once you do figure that out, please let me know because I the the repellent doesn't seem to work. The bug zappers don't. They they seem to be very attracted to me and not very attracted to my wife. So there's a real there's a real issue there in the marriage right now. So <laughs> yeah, that's common actually. Although interestingly, a lot of times women seem to be more attractive to mosquitoes than men. Although it's not obviously an overall. Uh, finding, but a lot of it has to do with the amount of carbon dioxide you produce. And there's also other, so more carbon dioxide will attract them. Um, uh, so, uh, yeah, unfortunately like DEET really does mm-hmm. work. Um, I mean, you want to be careful obviously not to use it, you know, in, insanely, but, um, it really does work. And a lot of the other supposed herbal remedies are not nearly as effective. Unfortunately, I think there's something new that they've come up with that, that is being tested, but, um, yeah, I agree with you. And, you know, it's also speaking. So I, of course, being interested in insects, I'm interested in this from a mosquitoes mm-hmm, perspective, mm-hmm. Um, which is that uh, it's that we can exert evolution of insect behavior by the way we try to eliminate mosquitoes. Um, so, for example, the Zika virus mm-hmm. um, uh, carrying mosquito used to be a perfectly you know, innocuous and calm little creature that lived in the forest and bothered monkeys and didn't bother people and then became and then evolved to become able to breed in little tiny um, uh, like uh, the uh, lids of water Mm -hmm. bottles that, you know, will get a little bit of water in them after they're discarded because, of course, people always just throw that stuff on the ground. Um, And so they could lay their eggs in there. And then once that happened, they became more um, diurnal and all kinds of stuff has happened to you know, select on the behavior of Zika carrying mosquitoes because um, people live alongside our, we, we live with our animals and we cause them to evolve. And sometimes we cause them to evolve in ways that are great. And sometimes we cause them to evolve in ways that are not so great. Fascinating. Fascinating research. Our guest, of course, has been Dr. Marlene Zook. A great sense of humor, Dr. Zook, and a wonderful book title, Dancing Cockatoos and the Dead Man Test. And you've been so generous with your time. Thank you for joining us today. We will, of course, have links to Dr. Zook's presentation coming up at the Smithsonian Associates. 
And more information about Dr. Zook's new book, again, titled Dancing Cockatoos and the Dead Man Test. Thanks for your time today and all these great stories. Um, yeah, I I just uh, am looking forward to your upcoming presentation. I know our audience will be so just, uh, uh, again, um, hats off to you. Congrats on the book and uh, thanks for your time today. Thanks so much for having me. My thanks to author and scientist Dr. Marlene Zook will be appearing at the Smithsonian Associates, and you can check out more details in our show notes today. I thank you, my wonderful audience here on the Not Old Better Show. Please be well, be safe, and let's eliminate assault rifles. Assault rifles are unnecessary and instill fear in our children and grandchildren in the very place that they learn, school. Please, let's do this. And please... Let's talk about better. The Not Old Better Show on radio and podcast. Thanks, everybody. And we'll see you next time. Today's show is dedicated to the late Dr. Barry Sinervo, my favorite scientist. Mm-hmm.